Welcome to the Why on Earth Community Podcast. I'm your host, Aaron William Perry, and today we're visiting with Jerry Tignano, the founder of Western Urban Sustainability Advisors. Jerry, how you doing? I'm great, and thank you for the correct pronunciation of my name. You're in a minority of about 2% of all humans who can do that. Well, I, I appreciate the acknowledgement and I will cop to having asked you just a few minutes ago the correct pronunciation because I, I wasn't certain. Tignano like piano is, is uh, it's a nice way to think about it. Yeah, but I'm doing great. Looking forward to our conversation today. Likewise, likewise, Jerry. Jerry Tignano is the proprietor of Western Urban Sustainability Advisors, LLC, West Herb, assists local governments in creating and improving sustainability programs. It also works with vendors that sell products or services to such programs and interest groups that want to improve local sustainability policies. Jerry's work at WestHerb reflects the successes he achieved at Denver's as Denver's first chief sustainability officer from 2012 to 2019 where under his leadership, the city of Denver became the fifth U.S. city certified at the platinum level of the U.S. Green Building Council's lead for cities program. That's leadership in environmental and in, uh, energy and environmental design. And during his tenure, Denver was also included in the A-list of top performing cities in climate change reporting and action by the International Climate Change Organization, CDP, which was formerly known as the Climate Disclosure Project. Right. Jerry previously served as a national officer of both the Sierra Club and the National Audubon Society and directed the Center for Energy and Environment at the Mid-Ohio Regional Planning Commission. The Sierra Club designated him a national environmental hero during its centennial celebration. Prior to his sustainability career, Jerry was a partner and commercial trial attorney with two of Ohio's, Ohio's largest law firms. He received his undergraduate and law degrees from George Washington University, and he was the 2018 winner of the Worth Chair Sustainability Award given by the University of Colorado, which Jerry, not all of our uh, audience will necessarily uh, know about yet, but I will be the first to say that here in the state of Colorado, this is one of, if not the most prestigious uh, sustainability awards one can receive concerning especially work uh, within the institutions and institutional level here in the state. So on that, you know, congratulations, obviously very well deserved. Thank you. And it's kind of interesting because the award is named after former Colorado Senator Timothy Worth who was elected in the Watergate year in 1974. And oddly enough, in 1975, when I was in college and started working part-time on Capitol Hill, I met Senator Ward when he was just a congressman, when he had just been elected. So it's funny, I met him in 1975, and then 2018, suddenly I get an award named after him. Long time in between. Well, that's great. I love the how that's full circle. So, Jerry, um, you know, I first 
became aware of you, your, your role with the city and county of Denver, your work as a chief sustainability officer, which I may refer to as a CSO through the conversation here. Um, when I was working in the uh, food arena, uh, running a food hub here in the state, and um, boy, you've accomplished so much uh, in that in that arena and, and touched on so many different industries and lives and sectors of, of our economies, our communities. And I want to make sure I think many of our audience are very aware of what chief sustainability officers are and do. Um, and thankfully, this has become a, a major uh, trend and movement in the world. But for, for those who maybe aren't as familiar, could you just describe for us what what is a chief sustainability officer and, and what were you doing when you were in that role for the city and county of Denver? It's a term that's really come into vogue in the last 10 to 15 years, let's say. Uh, it's relatively new in that when I was appointed in Denver um, in 2012, there were only two cities in the United States that had a chief sustainability officer, Denver and uh, Las Vegas, which was the first, interestingly enough. Um, it's also a term that's made its way into the corporate world. Um, many, many companies now have chief sustainability officers. Many local governments now have them, not so much at the state level, but particularly at the local level, cities, counties, towns, you know, have them. Um, the role differs in uh, in different communities. Uh, in the case of Denver, uh, it was in the mayor's office. Uh, and so there, we were working with all of the different departments and city governments in our city government. Um, and we have a combined city and county government, so it's 13,000 employees. And we were working with them to implement the mayor's sustainability vision, which was that uh, everyone would have uh, access to, or, or affordable access to the basic resources both today and tomorrow. People define sustainability different, differently. That's why I say it's different depending on which community you're in. Um, in some communities, uh, the office is programmatic, meaning that they are running actual programs out of that office. They might be, for example, doing a recycling education program or a program on energy saving in the home. That's the way it's structured some places. Uh, other places like in Denver, all of the programs were out in the city's departments. We didn't run anything out of our office. We worked with them to do it. Um, and the mayor structured it that way because he wanted sustainability to be a core business value of the entire city government, all of the departments. He did not want to segregate uh, the sustainability programs in our office, because then we'd be the little green ornament on the tree. That's where the sustainability stuff is happening. Everyone else was doing business as usual. And our mayor, Michael B. Hancock, did not want to do things that way. Uh, it is done that way in some other cities. And then in corporations, you know, it, it, it's different there because corporations really are just looking inward to their own operations. Um, and so uh, there, this chief sustainability officer, again, can, can play many different roles depending on how it's structured. Sometimes it comes out of the marketing department and it's mainly a marketing tool. Other times it comes out of product development or engineering. Sometimes it comes out of governance. There may be a board position and so forth. So it doesn't mean the same thing everywhere, but generally speaking, 
you're looking across that broad range of issues that you mentioned a moment ago. You're looking at energy and you're looking at waste and you're looking at food and you're looking at water conservation and pollution and mobility, traveling around and, and labor resources and things like that. You, you work with all of it. And that's why sustainability as a profession is so wonderful if you're a person like me who really wants to be into everything, basically. Loves to see how all the dots are connected. Well, that was a, a very interesting approach to decentralize the mechanisms and, and empower a whole bunch of others in the fabric of the community. Right. And, you know, the, I always tell people when they say, well, that chief sustainability officer, that's a new position. Look, the reality is that cities have always had chief sustainability officers for decades. They just don't call them chief sustainability officers. Sometimes the head of the city public works department is effectively the chief sustainability officer. Sometimes it's the head of the planning department. You know, there's always someone who's doing this, you know, acting in this capacity. And the reason for that is, in my opinion, sustainability really goes back to Ben Franklin. I mean, Ben Franklin was the founder of sustainability in the United States. And he wrote about it in Poor Richard's Almanac. He wrote down a lot of the principles that we use today like a penny saved is a penny earned, or a stitch in time saves nine. You know, really, these concepts have been around for decades and decades. The term, the title is new, but the principles of sustainability have been around for a long time. That's so wonderful. It's uh, amazing to me how much our modern world, uh, despite all of these technological advances, has been profoundly influenced by Ben Franklin in particular, among many of the framers from that time. Yeah, that radical guy, Ben Franklin. <laughs> yeah, if, 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 if I have it correctly, I believe that he was instrumental in establishing a postal system, the idea of community firefighting capabilities, mm -hmm. uh, even forms of insurance that help spread risk in the community. I mean, he, he did so much. Right. Yeah. And those principles have come down to us, um, although the term sustainability, even when I was in college in the 70s, wasn't really around yet. But the idea of it, it's been around for a long time. And often when you're looking for programs in sustainability, when you're thinking about what could we do, what would really work here? You don't have to invent something new. You have to go back to something old that worked for a long, long time and that we got away from and forgotten about. You know, when you look at a lot of cities, Part of their sustainability program is urban gardens. Um, well, urban gardens or gardening, you know, publicly is not a new thing. It's been around for a long time. In World War II, you know, 20 or 40% of produce in the United States was grown in uh, neighborhood gardens. Uh, and so it, we didn't have to invent something new when we created urban gardens. We had to go back in time to things that worked well a long time ago and um, are, 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 are ready to be resuscitated. You know, a lot of towns are now starting to uh, experiment with things called repair fairs, where they bring, you know, uh, skilled tradesmen and tradespeople into a central location and you bring your stuff down and have it repaired instead of throwing it out, you know, to keep it out of the landfill. Again, nothing new about repair or repairing things rather than throwing them out. In fact, I've always gotten a kick out of the fact that a lot of what is called sustainability now is what used to be called being cheap or being a cheapskate, you know, saving that ball of string or whatever, or saving all of your hangers instead of throwing them out. 
that you know sustainability used to call, be called being a cheapskate, but uh, and I, I you know that means a lot to me because my grandfather started out in this country over 100 years ago, uh, going around the countryside near where he lived in Lyle, Ohio, and picking up scrap metal and taking it to foundries. You know we call that recycling. Um, now uh, the 2020 cent, the 1920 census uh, described his profession as junk peddler. So it used to be junk peddling. Now it's recycling, but it's been around for a long, long time. No doubt. It, it reminds me of my grandparents as well. And, and it turns out when I was a relatively young uh, man, I was getting into sustainability, permaculture, etc. And And not to throw uh, any of them under the bus, but my parents and aunts and uncles generation at the time didn't really quite get where I was coming from. But when I was talking with my grandpa, who grew up in the Depression and was actually a prisoner of war during World War II in, in Germany, Nazi Germany, uh, he got it immediately. He said, you're, you're absolutely right. And he said something else that has stuck with me all these years. He said, the way our society has gone now is so far off track and off course. And he knew I was mm-hmm. in his gar- garden talking with him at the time. He, he knew things like the relocalization of food production and so forth was essential to the resilience and, and, and sustainability of our neighborhoods, our communities, our families. And so, yeah, I, I really resonate with the way you're framing this in terms of returning back to uh, things that, that were common practice uh, mm-hmm. not too terribly long ago, really, in the scheme of things. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, what we call local food today used to be called food. <laughs> I mean, it was, it was almost all local uh, or nearby and so forth. There's nothing new about it. What's new is the way the food system evolved into this thing where food travels hundreds or thousands of miles to get to us. That's new. Local food is more traditional. It's going back to our roots. Indeed, yeah. And I love pointing out as well that what we now call organic food we used to call food, right? Like right. Up, up until about a hundred years ago, all food for thousands and thousands of years was organic by mm-hmm. definition. And when I started working in what we now call sustainability, when I was in college on the staff of a congressman from Montana, and he got me into this, he, he asked me to work on what was then called alternative energy, solar energy, wind hadn't really come along yet, but solar energy, geothermal energy, it was just coming into its own and, you know, my goal, my hope, as I'm nearing the end of my career, is that we can apply the term alternative energy to gasoline, coal, oil, you know, those types of energy are viewed as alternative energy. And what we now call renewable energy is the basic or de- default system of energy to show off, you know, how, how far things have come over the period of my career. I love it. Yeah, the, the term anon- anomalous is, is coming to mind for me. <laughs> yeah, right. Can, can you remind me just, I want to get it down in my notes here. What percentage of our food were we growing in our gardens during World War II? Uh, it was not all food. It was produce. Yeah. Um, and it was about 40%. It maxed out uh, what were called victory gardens in the World Wars. Um, yeah. And it was about, it reached about 40%. The distinction between food and produce is important too, because um, large segments of the food system really cannot be produced in cities. You know, you can't produce grain 
in large quantities in cities. And you really can't produce meat in large quantities in cities. You can do a little bit with, um, uh, you know, some forms of aquaculture and things like that. But really, the full food system requires a region, not a city. But the produce, that part of, you know, the food chain of the food system, that can be done uh, very locally. And, and that's where the big comeback is happening right now. Yeah, yeah, absolutely wonderful. And I'd love to circle back on the food piece with you because, as you know, it's, it's very near and dear to my heart. But let me, let me first um, ask you, so now you're, you're uh, finished with your role at the city and county of Denver as chief sustainability officer, and, and you have more recently launched uh, your company, Western Urban Sustainability Advisors. Uh, can you tell us a bit about what you're doing and, and whom you're serving through the new company? I wanted to take the lessons that I learned as Denver's chief sustainability officer for seven years and apply them to other local governments in Colorado and elsewhere. Um, and so I offer my services to communities that are uh, creating sustainability plans, updating sustainability plans, creating climate action plans, creating individual programs you know, within those plans. Um, I typically work in partnerships with other organizations uh, simply because, you know, when you first become a consultant and you look at requests for proposals from various entities, they always say, well, give us a list of three other projects that you've done that are like this one. And coming out of government, there weren't any. I was not working in the private sector. So I typically partner with other companies. Uh, I'm on a team. I do have one project I'm working on right now, which is just me. It's helping the Big Sky community up in Montana uh, implement the climate action program that they put together uh, earlier this year, earlier in 2023. But for the most part, you know, it's doing what I did as chief sustainability officer in terms of planning, programming and things like that, but without all the bureaucracy of, you know, being an officer in a city government. I leave that to the to the client now. So interesting. You know, we recently had on uh, Nathan Stuck on a podcast episode who has a company called Profitable Purpose Consulting. And he's helping a whole uh, number of companies and organizations out there get B certified and or prepare for the pathway to becoming B certified. And I'm I'm curious, just sort of thinking about possible connections here. Um, how might you and your offerings, you know, differ from and or complement, you know, something like what Nathan and his team are offering, particularly I'm thinking here for the private sector, because we had mentioned you're working both with uh, municipal scale governmental entities, as well as the private sector. Is that correct? I do a little bit of work with the private sector, not too much. Um, generally, if uh, someone in the private sector has a product or service that really strikes me as something with tremendous potential and they want to make a, a link to local governments. They either want to sell it to a local government or they really need local governments to make some changes in their laws to open the door for what it is they're doing with their product or service. Then I will help uh, a private business, but I'm not doing general business consulting. You know, someone who's helping companies become B corporations, which does tie in directly to sustainability, that's entirely in the private sector. Um, their clients are all going to be private sector companies. There is no you know, B company or B corporation rating for local governments. It's entirely private sector. 
But the issues we're working on are probably very similar. Uh, you know, I'm helping the local government pursue sustainability initiatives. They're helping private companies do the same thing. Yeah, in, in your bio, we mentioned that uh, Denver became uh, the fifth city certified under the, the U.S. Green Building Council's LEED uh, Platinum Level Certification. And I'm assuming just because of what I know about um, the U.S. Green Building Council, that pertained primarily to the buildings, the built environment and related infrastructure. Is is that true, A? And, and B, are there other uh, certifications for cities and municipalities that that speak to other dimensions of the sustainability fabric? Well, LEED for Cities and Communities actually grew out of the buildings program of the U.S. Green Building Council, but it evolved from a recognition that there was more to sustainability than just buildings. Mm. So what a city does in regulating its buildings, um, in its own buildings and regulating private buildings, is part of what goes into a certification as a lead city, but there's a lot of other things that go into it too. You know, you look at the city's solid waste systems and what the city is doing with energy and water and um, what it's doing with land use uh, and mobility and so forth and so on. And uh, like with the buildings part of lead, the city basically says, this is what we're doing and they get points for doing certain things or achieving certain things or hitting certain benchmarks. And then you add those points up and you see what level of certification that they're going to get. So yes, it is buildings, but really it also goes well beyond buildings. Um, and it's also a two-part program. Lead for Cities is a certification of local government like a city or a county, but there's also Lead for Communities, um, which are big kind of like cities, um, uh, but they're more than just a building. They could be more like a campus. Um, but they're not a local government. Um, you know, Rockefeller Center in uh, in New York, which is a combination of buildings um, that's a, a lead for communities certified um, area. Uh, airports uh, can be certified as lead for communities communities. So really, you're looking to bridge the U.S. Green Building Council's programs from the individual buildings up to much larger units. But they do play with each other in the sense that uh, uh, it's probably easier to develop a LEED green building if your city is LEED certified. Because one of the things that your city has done to get that certification is to really open up the door and make it easier for individual developers to develop green buildings, green neighborhoods, and so forth. There are other um, rating systems, uh, somewhat similar. You know, there's the Global Compact of Mayors, uh, which has certain requirements of, of mayors relating to climate. Um, there are standards for healthy buildings. There's the well building standard. Um, there are um, other systems out there. I like USGBC. I like Lee because it's been around for so long. It has such a strong brand. It's very rigorous uh, and therefore it's very trustworthy. Yeah, it really, it really seems to have become the gold or plat platinum standard. <laughs> right. Um, yeah. And I'm curious, uh, do you have a sense for how many cities around the United States, you know, large major cities, medium sized cities and or internationally have already attained some level of lead certification? 
Um, in terms of cities, and cities can include counties, um, we're probably somewhere between, somewhere around 100 maybe worldwide. Uh, you know, not a lot, although many of those that have attained it are larger cities like Denver. You know, Denver has gotten there, Washington, D.C., Phoenix, places like that, Arlington, Virginia. Um, communities, smaller number. Most of the communities are overseas. Um, uh, the program is particularly strong in East Asia and South Asia, um, and it's gaining strength in the Gulf states, you know, the Persian Gulf. Um, again, they're not a lot right now, but like any other program, you know, you want it to grow, you want it to expand, um, and you want to see exponential growth. So it, the, both of those programs have grown every single year uh, since they started, and we're getting to larger and larger numbers. Um, so hopefully we'll see more and more cities, counties, and so forth getting that certification. Yeah, that's wonderful to, to hear about. And very interesting to think about the interconnection where if a city is already certified, it makes it easier for a particular building or project or community to get certified. That, that I love hearing that because it speaks to the, the interconnectedness of all of these different systems and modalities. Right. Yeah, the important thing is that the lead certification has to mean something. You know, like you can talk about we're lead certified and if the reaction of everyone is, well, what does that mean? Um, but I can tell you when we do certify, when the U.S. Green Building Council does certify cities, they always celebrate. There's always a press conference. There's always a photo with the mayor and city officials proudly holding up that certificate and so forth. So clearly it does mean something, just like with buildings, you know, when the buildings program was getting started and people would earn that certification for their building, there'd always be a press event or a media event or something in the corporate report, you know, showing that lead plaque that's on the building. So the reason the program succeeds is because the U.S. Green Building Council has made the certification mean something. Um, and it, it's got to keep doing that. Uh, but that's why it, it's a rock solid system. That's why it's lasted a long time. You know, the buildings program has been around for over 20 years. So, and it's funny because when I was with the National Audubon Society, I developed my one and only lead building. It was a nature education center that we developed in Columbus, Ohio, and it was lead gold. And it was one of the first buildings in Ohio to go after lead. And I remember when I was learning lead, you know, in order to build this building, my reaction was, oh, this is never going to last. This is never going to last. This is too. This is too cumbersome. It's too hard. You know, no one's going to do this. And I learned the hard way to never bet against the U.S. Green Building Council because the program has been a phenomenal success. And and I learned the hard way. I learned by doing uh, just how rigorous it is, and therefore just how valuable that certification is when you get it. Yeah, that's so great, David. Yeah, back when I was. Um, in graduate school, I mentioned to you prior to our recording here that uh, I was working for a green buildings uh, material company. Uh, my friend uh, David Adamson uh, founded and, and continues to run. And uh, we would get all of these wonderful publications from the U.S. Green Building Council on all manner of uh, built environment systems and structures and design strategies. And uh, yeah, it's 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 amazing to step back and consider for just a moment how much incredibly good impact that that one organization has had all around the world just in the last couple of mm -hmm. decades yeah and that's due to a very dedicated staff 
that again is very rigorous in what they do. Um, if you've ever, for example, been a speaker at uh, a U.S. Green Building Ca Council conference, you have no idea the hoops you have to jump through just to be approved to speak and then to have your presentation approved. I've never seen it anywhere else, but that's why their conferences are of such high quality because they they put the effort in up front to make sure that everything is done to the highest standard. Yeah, uh, that's so so wonderful to hear. Well, I have to ask because uh, I'm curious. Um, you mentioned airports and back in the day our recycling and food distribution companies uh, had business at denver uh, international airport one of the largest busiest in the country and even worldwide um mm -hmm. and, and a, a really n notable and somewhat storied airport including with like conspiracy theories and all kinds of right. strange <laughs> uh, mysterious uh, lore surrounding it yeah i'm curious in your role as cso for denver did you have a lot to do with the airport and, and was there a lot going on there in terms of sustainability efforts? I did have a lot to do with the airport because in Denver, um, unlike many other cities, the airport, Denver International Airport is actually a city department. It's actually a department of Denver government. So it's controlled by the city and county of Denver and therefore it was subject to the work I was doing as the chief sustainability officer. And I have to say, uh, Denver International Airport has a very impressive track record in the area of sustainability. I cannot take personal credit for a lot of it. You know, I, I worked with them, but uh, they have done some remarkable uh, things out there. Just as an example, something that happens behind the scenes that people don't even know about. You know, in the winter, when you fly out, out of an airport like Denver, you have to have the plane de-iced with this chemical. So what happens to that chemical? You know when they when they when they sprayed over the plane well in many uh, uh airports it's it's just sent into the sewer system or like laguardia they used to and maybe they still do they they would just plow it into the long island sound denver actually collects it and has a recycling plant on the site of denver international airport you'll never see this as a passenger but i got a backstage tour they actually have a recycling plant right at the airport to recycle that stuff so it doesn't get into the environment and that's pretty remarkable. They also have a really remarkable food recovery or waste food recovery program where they started out and they put a big um, freezer uh, uh, in the airport and they ask all of their vendors, you know, if you have leftover food, um, not, you know, waste, not scraps from the uh, diner's table, but food that you bought and then for whatever reason you can't use it, could you give it to us and we'll distribute it to hunger shelters? That program was so successful that they had to expand that refrigerator by a factor of five, you know, to, to, to take in all of the waste food that was being offered uh, by their vendors. Um, and so that's really a remarkable thing that they're doing. I've seen machines they have for recycling fluorescent bulbs. They have um, a, a way of recycling all the plastic packaging and wrapping that comes off of freight that comes into the airport. So they're doing an awful lot out there. If you've been out there, you've probably seen the solar uh, arrays that you, you go by when you're going into the airport. But that's really just the tip of the iceberg. Uh, so Denverites can be really proud of, of their airport. It, it, it truly is one of the greenest uh, airports in the world. Well, I got to ask, I can't help myself. So what, what of all these uh, conspiracy theories out there do you think? <laughs> 
Well, for those of your viewers who don't know about this, there have been conspiracy theories about the airport for a long, long time. Um, all you have to do is keyword search Denver Airport Conspiracy, and you'll see all the YouTube videos and so forth. There's a number of things. There's, you know, the, the, the air, the, the, the um, uh, building was, was originally going to have this underground um, handling system for the luggage that never really got built, but there's this big supposedly empty underground area that's been rumored to you know house the the landing place for the world government you know when the apocalypse comes they're all going to go down there the runways if you look at them from above they kind of look a little bit like a swastika which was supposed to be uh you know a symbol of something um there's some artwork in the airport that supposedly sends these signals and keyword search denver denver airport conspiracy and you'll you'll have to um see it for yourself there was one thing though i asked the airport director about this there was one part that was true one of the conspiracies is that apparently the british royal family through a bunch of um uh, of uh, of corporations that they created under other names has bought up a lot of land near the airport now the conspiracy theorists said that's because the british royal family is all supposed to go there just before the apocalypse happens and they want to have all this land and so forth well the airport director at the time said that's not what they buy but they do own a lot of property under other corporate names near the denver international airport that part of it is true most of it is not true but it is pretty funny and i used to tease the airport director about it and let's say i told her you know when that when those doors close and the apocalypse was here i want you to be sure i'm inside of there with my family <laughs> yeah, that's that's so interesting. It reminds me a little bit too of lore around Henry Kissinger and others owning land in southern Colorado, maybe for similar reasons. And I actually can't help but mentioning I, I play with some of these themes, especially at the airport in my novel Veriditas, when the character Brigitte Sophia has to fly into Colorado and goes through the airport. And she actually goes by some of the artwork you're referencing, some of these paintings with amazing mm -hmm. symbolry and so forth. And you know, of course, with the swastika, many of us affiliate this with the, the horrors and atrocities of Nazi Germany, but maybe not as many of us are aware that this is a sacred symbol to many peoples, the ancient uh, folks in the Himalayas, the ancient Hindu tradition, mm -hmm. uh, and Hopi and other uh, Native American traditions also use this symbol, although not necessarily oriented the same way that the Nazi Germany uh, right. regime. It. But uh, yeah, it was, it's it's kind of fun to think about these things and, and, and laugh a, a little bit about them. Well, as the airport director pointed out to me, if you actually look at the runways, it's backwards from what the actual swastika would be. Yeah. But it's an interesting theory, you know. It's it's we I, we got some laughs out of it. Oh my gosh! Let me uh, just take a moment and remind our audience that this is the Why on Earth Community Podcast. I'm your host, Aaron William Perry, and today we're visiting with Jerry Tignano, the founder of Western Urban Sustainability Advisors. And I want to be sure to mention a few ways you can connect with Jerry and his work. Uh, on the web, you can go to westherb.com. We'll put this in the show notes, of course, as well. On Facebook, it's Jerry Tignano, uh, and it's uh, Jerome Tignano on LinkedIn. 
Um, and uh, again, we'll have all these links in the show notes for you. And I also want to take a moment to thank the many partners and sponsors who help make our Why on Earth Community podcast series possible. Uh, this includes Chelsea Green Publishing, and we have a special arrangement with them and several of our other partners where you can get discounts on their offerings. And with Chelsea Green, you can get a 35% discount on their printed books and audiobooks. Just go to the whyonearth.org website, go to the partners and supporters page, and you'll find the various links and logos and so forth with a bunch of these wonderful offerings for you. So Chelsea Green Publishing, Purium Organic Superfoods, likewise, uh, $50 or 25% off your first order, whichever is greater with them. Uh, Profitable Purpose Consulting, I just mentioned our friend Nathan Stuck's company. Uh, Whaley Waters, uh, biodynamically grown hemp infused aromatherapy soaking salts. Uh, Earth Hero, sustainability products for your home, your workplace, elsewhere. Uh, Soil Works Biodynamic Garden Preparation. Of course, Earth Coast Productions and make all of our technical and post-production uh, work possible. And last but not least, I want to thank our many ambassadors and our growing global network of ambassadors. These are organizational leaders, executives, community leaders, entrepreneurs, creatives, all engaging in the regeneration and sustainability renaissance worldwide, one way or another. And uh, for our ambassadors, we have a variety of offerings, including our special behind the scenes segments that we record with uh, podcast guests, which we'll be doing with Jerry soon uh, after the main episode here. And if you're not yet an ambassador and you'd like to join, you can go to whyonearth.org and just seek out the pages for becoming an ambassador. And um, many thanks to those ambassadors who are fully activated and make a monthly donation to Why on Earth. If you haven't yet signed up to make a monthly donation and you'd like to, you can go to the donator support button on the website and, and sign up there at whatever level works for you. If you decide to do $33 or more per month as a thank you gift, we'll send you a jar of the Whaley Water soaking salts uh, to not only uh, express our gratitude for your support, but also help you in your personal well-being and joy and delight practices. Uh, so many thanks to everybody. And uh, Jerry, I, I, I just love uh, thinking about the arc of your career. And of course, uh, we ran into each other this past April at the Earth X gathering in Dallas around Earth Day. And I got to ask, you know, how does somebody who starts out in a legal career, right? You're a lawyer, mm -hmm. uh, end up doing all of this other work. How, how, how does something like that unfold over time? I actually started before law school. Um, as I mentioned, I went to undergraduate school at George Washington University. Uh, I wanted to work on Capitol Hill during, uh, during law school and during college. And I was able to work for a young freshman congressman from Montana named Mads Vakas. And I didn't have any agenda. I didn't have any particular issue that I was working on. Um, but he said, I want you to work on alternative energy, agriculture, forestry, natural resources, things like that. He also sent me out to Montana during my summers to work in his district. And I just fell in love with the West. I fell in love with those issues. Um, and so I carried it into law school. Uh, while I was there, I clerked for the Sierra Club Legal Defense Fund, which is now called Earth Justice. And then when I went back home to Cleveland, which is where I'm from, to practice law, I also continued my um, 
involvement with the Sierra Club as a volunteer. So really, you know, I, I didn't set out to be a sustainability guy. Um, I just kind of stumbled into it. The profession, as we now know, it didn't even really exist back then. But I started doing all this stuff as a volunteer, worked my way up the ladder uh, on the volunteer side of the Sierra Club um, as a, a local group chair and a state chair and a regional vice president and national vice president. Um, and then I decided I wanted to do at full time. And from when I decided that until when I got a full-time job was 10 years, because by then I was living and working in, in Columbus. I'd been transferred to another office in our law firm. And uh, there just back then there just weren't a lot of jobs anywhere other than on the coast. So it took me 10 years. I finally got the job at Autobahn. Uh, that took me into the Mid-Ohio Regional Planning Commission, got the invitation to come to Denver to be the chief sustainability officer. And, you know, I didn't plan it this way. Uh, and I'll tell you one other thing, Aaron, if back then when I was working on Capitol Hill and in college and everything, if someone had told me, when you come out of law school, you're going to have one government job in your life and it'll be working for a city, I would have told them they were nuts. I would have said, are you kidding a city? Cities, that's where, you know, that's where corruption occurs. That's where they pick up garbage. That's where they fill potholes. What could I possibly do in a city that would be of any importance? And yet, you know, by the time I finally got that job in 2012, cities were where it was at. You know, the frozen the, the federal government was frozen up. The state government's not doing too well. But at the city level, at the local level, that's where you can really get things done. And, and anyone who's watching this and thinking of a career in sustainability, take a look at local government, because I think that's where the most exciting stuff happens. Yeah, it's so cool. I want to I want to ask especially at your time with the city, what are some of the accomplishments that, that you're most proud of and that you think have had the most, perhaps the most impact? Um, you know, we took the, what was with the mayor, Mayor Hancock referred to as a marketing program, a program called Greenprint, which his predecessor had run. And we totally altered um, its focus. Uh, the mayor gave me a four-word agenda, four words, um, which was scale and everybody plays. So he wanted us to focus on moving big numbers, um, not little stuff, not little you know demonstration projects or whatever. Uh, and it was funny because my first day on the job, when the staff of the old office was giving me the tour, at the end, one of the women on the staff said to me, you know what I hope you could really accomplish while you're here? I hope you can really get the mayor to stop drinking out of his styrofoam cup. And the mayor told me scale and everybody plays. And I didn't say anything to her, but I said, boy, do I have a long way to go here? Because that's what they're thinking. They're thinking it's about an individual drinking out of a styrofoam cup. And so, um, and everybody plays, man, what I talked about earlier, he wanted every agency and city government to be involved in sustainability. And so over a period of seven years, um, uh, you know, I always, we had no authority. We couldn't order any department to do anything. We had almost no money. We had very little money. Um, and we had to work by persuasion, by persuading everyone to, to, to work in this area. And I think we did build it into their culture. And then in my final year, kind of all the fruits came about. You mentioned being certified for lead and you mentioned, uh, being on the A list of top performing cities. Uh, worldwide in climate. Uh, and I was proud that in 2020, we set a very, I'm sorry, 2013, 
we set a very ambitious greenhouse gas reduction goal for our community to get our emissions down to where they were in 1980 in total, not per capita, in total by 2020. Um, and we actually met that goal two years ahead of schedule. Uh, we met that goal in 2018, and almost no other cities were able to do that. And that was not me. Um, that was the product of getting everyone on board, um, focusing on scale, uh, getting all the agencies involved um, to the point where just after I left, you know, our city council said, um, we need to be doing a lot more of this. We need a lot more money and a much bigger staff. Um, and so they put an issue on the ballot uh, in 2020 that uh, through which Denverites would put a little tax on their uh, electricity bills, which would fund a new office called the Office of Climate Action, Sustainability and Resilience. And that passed overwhelmingly. And we went from my office, which was funded at $400,000 a year and had three people, to the current Office of Climate Action, Sustainability and Resilience, which has all, all over $40 million a year um, and a staff of dozens of people. Um, so, you know, I'm pretty pleased with what I did uh, over seven years. Seven years is a long time to stay uh, in, in, in a position in city government. Uh, and I'm very, very grateful that I was able to have this one opportunity to work in government and also grateful that I'm able to work with other cities and local governments around the country now um, because they're all different. And I'm someone who thrives on difference. I'm not the kind of person who can do the same thing every day. I want to do something different every day. And that's what my current company allows me to do. Well, it's so impressive. Uh, congrats. And my gosh, from 400,000 to 40 million, if I'm getting my math correct, this is two orders of magnitude, a hundredfold increase. Uh, what does that mean? And just thinking about numbers for a quick moment and budgets at mm -hmm. a municipal level, what does that mean in terms of you know, is this now a hundred times greater cost center or or is that 40 million more like an investment right. in avoiding a whole bunch of other costs or potential costs? Um, when they structured the uh, ballot initiative, they were very careful to indicate that a lot of that money was supposed to go out into the community. It was not supposed to fund hiring a lot of new staff. Um, and so it was almost structured at least in part as a sort of a foundation, like a new found, new uh, private foundation. And so a lot of what the office does has been to make grants to other entities to do work, to do research, to start their own programs, um, to do their own training and so forth. Uh, but they also have operational work. I mean, they're still you know, monitoring Denver's greenhouse gas emissions. They have to be updating plans, they have to come up with new programs. Uh, and of course, Denver, uh, as of two weeks ago, when we're recording this, has a new mayor, um, and he's going to appoint a new uh, head of that office. In fact, when I left and they created that office, they they got rid of the term chief sustainability officer. Um, they called it the executive director of that office. The new mayor is bringing back the term chief sustainability officer, um, and, uh, and, and that person's going to have a lot of money to play with and a lot of staff to work with. I would say it may not be the, the, the largest climate and sustainability fund of any city in the United States because there's other cities that are much larger than Denver, but I'd be willing to bet on a per capita or per resident basis, it's the best funded climate sustainability program of any city in the country. Wow, yeah, it's really quite interesting. And it actually, uh, 
I would consider it a positive thing to bring back the chief sustainability officer title term because one of the the trends and patterns we're seeing worldwide is not only among more and more uh, municipal governments, but also in the private sector, including with the world's largest corporations, um, a position of chief sustainability officer in many of these organizations mm -hmm. and institutions and more and more connectivity, it seems, among many CSOs out there uh, in order to you know share information and, and best practices or equivalent uh, ideas, what have you. And uh, I'm curious, and I want to ask a, a two-part question. Um, the first part is, what's your view on this, this global phenomenon and, and potential for connectivity and collaboration among CSOs in particular as a certain node within these uh, organizational ecosystems? And secondly, uh, tying back to your earlier comment about your uh, first steps in your professional career, what would you advise to folks these days, obviously the world's a little different, uh, who want to do work in the sustainability, regenerative stewardship arenas um, regarding any particular uh, courses of study or third party certifications and education programs that they might uh, choose to go through experience, add to their resumes, et cetera. So I, it may seem like a bit of a broad question here with these two parts, but in my mind, at least it's kind of all interconnected. Let me start the, the second question first about people who are looking to go into this as a career. Um, if you are, you're in luck because sustainability has spread out so far. Remember I said earlier, I had to wait 10 years to get a job because there were hardly any, that's not true anymore. Sustainability is everywhere. It's throughout the private sector, the public sector and so forth. And my recommendation, which may make some people unhappy is I don't actually believe in getting degrees in sustainability and getting a master's degree in sustainability or a certificate in sustainability or anything like that. I believe it's about your skills. It's about your analytical skills, your ability to use statistics, your ability to research new areas and learn new things, um, your ability, for example, if you can't do um, geographic information system GIS work, at least you know how to talk to someone who can. Uh, it's about your skill with computer graphics, design, communications, things like that. I mean, the substance of sustainability is relatively easy. This, those certificates and the degrees as an employer, as someone who used to hire in this area, never really meant much to me. You know, I, I want to know what you can do. Um, do you understand science? Do you understand engineering? Can you work with numbers? Can you work with computer programs? Can you create engaging presentations to the public? Can you win people over? Those are the skills that I would look at. And there's so many different professions out there where you can do that. You know, some of the people I know who've been very successful in this field have started out in entirely different fields. Um, and so that would that would be my advice. Don't look for a degree with that name or a program with that name. Focus on whatever skills you can develop and whatever tangible things you can produce to show other people. Like this proves that I know how to do it. Look at this thing that I produce. That's what you need to be focusing on. Um, I will say I'm not maybe not as high on this chief sustainability officer position or title. Um, as you are. It's often misused in a lot of places. It's still mainly a marketing device. 
there's a lot of greenwashing still out there, a lot of greenwashing. Um, and there are people are making fun of, maybe you've heard the term ESG, um, environment, social governance, um, yeah. which a lot of companies are doing. It's almost become like a joke now because so much of ESG is just posturing, presenting reports that no one reads or that only a bot somewhere reads. Um, you know, the joke I heard recently was that the company in their ESG support report, they said, well, um, we really didn't cut back on our pollution, but we are using better pronouns now. Oh my so God. that, you know, unfortunately, there's a yeah. lot of it and there's, it's become very politicized. So let's just say just because you have or hear that someone has a chief sustainability officer doesn't mean things are automatically going to be great. You need to dig below the surface and ask some tough questions to find out what's really going on. Yeah, I love I love the relevance and the salience of your insights and feedback here on, on both parts of the question, Jerry, and it's all very well taken. And I actually, on that first question about career paths and so on, I ended up writing something very similar um, in, in my book, Why on Earth, actually. And so um, I, I love hearing that sort of uh, corroborated or, or reinforced. And I, what I'm also hearing is we've got a lot of work to do. Uh, and regardless of our particular position uh, professionally, also as citizens uh, engaged in civic processes and as consumers engaged in market dynamics and uh, purchasing decisions, there, there's a whole lot we can be doing. At least that's my view on things. And I'm, I'm really curious, Jerry, if, 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 if somebody could hand you a magic wand uh, and you were able to prescribe for us over the next three, five, 10, 20, 25 years, the, the directionality, the trends, the changes that you'd hope to see so that uh, we're moving rapidly from greenwashing to real action and, and real fundamental uh, systems change. How would you, what would you do with that magic wand? How would you do that? How would you go about that? Well, the first thing I would do is use it to put a meaningful price on carbon. Okay. Uh, so much would flow from putting a meaningful price on carbon. And that's the one thing we never seem to get around to doing uh, at the national, international level and so forth. Every program that we work with in sustainability and climate, for the most part, would work better if there were a meaningful price on carbon. Um, but, or to put it another way, to try to do climate action work without a price on carbon is like going into a battle with one arm tied behind your back and the other arm in a sling. You know, I mean, give me that magic wand. That is the first thing I would do because it would really affect everything else. It would, it would unleash the, the private sector to be innovative and so forth. We would actually need a lot less regulation because, you know, for example, if we actually had a meaningful price on carbon, we might not need to have federal regulation of fuel efficiency. We not, may not have to say your cars have to get this amount of miles per gallon or whatever. The market would do that for us, uh, particularly if, it, if we use a, a, a revenue-neutral carbon fee and dividend. Um, uh, Washington State is experimenting with something like that. They now have a carbon market up there. And Rocky Mountain Institute recently did an analysis of 20 large state climate programs in terms of who was on track and who wasn't on track. And you know who was the furthest ahead? Washington State. And I don't think that's I don't think that's a, a coincidence. 
Um, so that's the one thing I would do with my magic wand. But if I could do one other thing, like big picture, I would turn us all into cheapskates again. Remember <laughs> I talked about earlier about I got into this because I'm basically cheap. I'm a cheap bastard. I, I would get in, people into saving stuff and saving energy. This would be, you know, the, the core culture. It would be, um, it would not be, people would not be teased for saving stuff, for saving aluminum or whatever. They, they would be esteemed for that. Um, they would be esteemed for uh, going with a, a, a lower cost, um, healthier diet. Um, th those type of things, you know, being less focused on accumulating wealth and more focused on accumulating personal satisfaction, not even satisfaction, I guess, personal development to your full extent. Um, so many good things would, would flow from that. So that's my second use of the magic wand. I absolutely love this. I, and I, I created a phrase that I've hung near my office for years, frugal abundance. And yeah. there's, there's this, this, this great secret that I think more and more people are tuning into that is as we simplify our lives and, and shrink our footprints of impact and consumption, by and large, we experience higher quality of life. And mm -hmm. certainly there's many, many, many millions of our brothers and sisters around the world who don't have the, the basics met. And, and this is a conversation that I think deserves uh, acknowledging the reality worldwide and right here in our country, right here in Colorado, right in the city and county of Denver. And so for a lot of us, however, there's, there's such an overabundance of material goods, financial wealth and so forth that uh, strangely enough, it, it seems to contribute to a lower quality of life often uh, when we're mm -hmm. not engaged in this kind of way of, of being frugal, which again, makes me think of grandparents. And uh, I <laughs> yeah. absolutely love your wisdom there. So that's my magic wand. Yeah, it's so it's so great, Jerry. And I, I got to ask a carbon question. So, you know, for 20, 25 years, we we were looking at assumed carbon market pricing of around five, maybe ten dollars a ton. And lo and behold, in the last 18 months, we've seen in the markets worldwide demand for uh, carbon uh, from big buyers, uh, cash buyers, uh, pricing 50, $100 a ton, more than $100 a ton for high quality carbon coming out of things like biochar and certain measurable, verifiable uh, uh, regenerative agricultural practices and, and, and a few technological uh, sources as well, although that's not really online from what I understand by and large relative to what it might be down the road. So we're getting, we're starting to see a lot of very real pricing signals just in the last uh, four or six quarters. Uh, it's it's real. Like some of my friends and colleagues mm -hmm. in the finance world are, are are sort of lit up around this. What what do you think about that? Well, you're right. Washington State in their most recent uh, auction of, of 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 carbon allowances, uh, their price came out around fifty dollars per ton. Uh -huh. um, and that's important because if you have to pay $50 per ton to release or use that carbon, maybe you're going to figure out a way to not release it and not use it. If it goes to $100 a ton, you're going to find even more ways to do it. That's why I keep saying if we could put a price, you know, not just in Washington State in certain parts of their economy, but globally, worldwide, 
and then let the market respond, um, I think it would be great. Um, it's, but it really does. Ha- I mean, the smallest unit that can do carbon pricing is a large state, by which I mean physically large, like Washington or Colorado. Someplace in Delaware, Rhode Island, probably wouldn't work because it's too easy to just go across the border from you know Wilmington, Delaware, to buy something in a place where they don't have the, the price on carbon. So it really has to be a big state, a region, or a nation, or ideally the world. I don't know whether we're going to get there in time or not. But I am glad to see that, as you've noted, that we're moving in that direction. Um, And hopefully, and I think really to have it happen at a state or national level, it's going to have to be paired with relaxation of other regulations. Let's get away from command and control, telling people exactly how to do things. Let's put a price on stuff. Um, and 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 see if we can get things cut back that way because people are very innovative, um, people are entrepreneurial, uh, they're very creative in terms of solving these problems. And once you start to put the price tags on them, um, a lot of great things can happen. Yeah, absolutely. I love that. I love that vision and that recommended approach. And I, this has planted a seed for me, Jerry, that uh, perhaps uh, down the road a little ways we could have a another uh, podcast session, perhaps with another guest and you Mm -hmm. talking about the carbon piece in particular, because I I think this is such an important topic right now. Perhaps we'd invite somebody in from the the financial sector specifically. Um, That could be a lot of fun. But I uh, recognize that uh, we're we're getting toward the end of our time here for the podcast interview and want to make sure we have some time for our behind the scenes segment for our ambassador network. And once again, folks, if, if you'd like to join our ambassador network and haven't yet, you can just go to whyonearth.org and go to the page called uh, become an ambassador and get your journey started that way. And then you'll have access to our behind the scenes segments, as well as a whole bunch of hours of footage of different uh, conferences and symposia and our uh, recorded uh, sessions uh, from our monthly online Regeneration Renaissance Roundtable meetups. First Sunday of each month, we get together. 11.33 a.m. Colorado time for those. Um, and, and Jerry, I'm just uh, so thrilled we could have this time together. And I want to ask you one final question. Uh from a certain perspective, we could say that the world is really quite far behind uh, where we could be, or, or, or some might even say where we ought to be relative to so, so many of these systemic risks that we're facing that are impacting the lives of people all around the world now. Mm-hmm. Why do you think we're so far behind and, and what do you think we, we can do about it? Um. I think the problem with climate change is it's very complex, the chain of things that lead up to it and the the chain of things that lead back to it um, is very complicated. You know, by comparison, that problem, the hole in the ozone layer, remember that? It's gonna be a hole in the ozone layer. So we've largely solved that because that was a much less complex problem and it was also kind of an equal opportunity problem that everyone was going to get fried, you know. And it, 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 it's not that, like if you had more money, you were going to be able to avoid it. Um, but climate change is very, very complicated. And there's also feeling, you know, there's a, I don't know if you'll know the, the old joke about, you know, two guys are out in the woods and a bear starts chasing them. They're running yeah. away and 
The first yeah. guy says, gosh, I hope we can outrun the bear. And the second guy says, well, I don't have to outrun the bear. I just have to outrun you. Um, yeah, I, I and I think that all that joke as a lawyer joke, as a matter of fact. <laughs> well, yeah, I, there's lots of lawyer jokes, but but the, the point is, I think there's a lot of folks out there, very powerful folks who say, I don't think this is going to lead to the extinction of humanity or whatever. Yeah. It's going to hurt a lot of people, just not me and mine, mm -hmm. because I don't have to outrun the bear. I just have to outrun those other people. And I think that's why it's such a challenge um, to, 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 to deal with. And if we're going to deal with it, I think the key is going to be that for everything we want to sell people on that needs to happen, we need to come up with some completely independent reason to do it that has nothing to do with climate change. We, I, and I've had these conversations. We need to be able to say, I don't care whether you believe it or not. I don't care whether you think the climate is always changing and so forth and so on. Um, let's do this because it's going to save you money. You may not be interested in the climate, but you are interested in money. You're interested in your own lifestyle. This is going to let you live longer. This is going to let you be happier. This is going to um, you know, make your neighborhood better, whatever. Um, I think that's the key. If we're going to beat it, that's the way we're going to beat it. Yeah, so brilliant, Jerry, and, and and thank you so much for sharing your time with us and your your wisdom, your insights, and thanks, of course, for all of the the work that you're doing uh, for our world. Um, and and before we wrap up the podcast, I just I want to be sure to uh, give you the floor for anything else you'd like to say uh, to our audience, calls to action, whatever it might be. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, thank you, my friend. The The floor is yours. Yeah, my final message would be to everyone, pay attention. Don't automatically accept the conventional wisdom. Ask questions. Ask questions of businesses. Ask questions of public officials. And most important, vote. Because and I'm a re registered in Colorado. We're called unaffiliated. I've been a registered independent for 20 years. I left the Democratic Party 20 years ago, so I don't belong to any particular party. But I will say the one thing I'm certain of is in 2024, if the president that we elect is a Republican, it's basically game over for climate change. This really is the end of the game. We're, we're not going to be able to have national leadership in the United States with a Republican president. And that makes me sad because earlier in my career, I worked with a lot of Republicans who were very progressive in this area. Uh, things have really, really changed during my lifetime. But now, unfortunately, that party is so anti doing anything about climate change that if, the United, if they're in, the United States won't lead. And if the United States won't lead, it's not gonna happen. So above all else, stay informed and vote next year. Uh, words of wisdom. Thank you, Jerry. Thank you so much for joining us on the show and uh, sharing your insights with us. Okay. My pleasure. Looking forward to the uh, off the record part of the program when we tell all your ambassadors what's really going on at the Denver airport. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> yeah, thanks, Jerry. <laughs> all right. We'll see you. Bye-bye. The Why on Earth Community Stewardship and Sustainability podcast series is hosted by Aaron William Perry, author, thought leader, and executive consultant. The podcast and video recordings are made possible by the generous support of people like you. 
To sign up as a daily, weekly, or monthly supporter, please visit whyonearth.org support. Support packages start at just $1 per month. The podcast series is also sponsored by several corporate and organization sponsors. You can get discounts on their products and services using the code WHYONEARTH, all one word with a Y. These sponsors are listed on the whyonearth.org backslash support page. If you found this particular podcast episode especially insightful, informative, or inspiring, please pass it on and share it with a friend whom you think will also enjoy it. Thank you for tuning in. Thank you for your support. And thank you for being a part of the Why on Earth community.